This is Focal Point for Monday the 21st of December 2009, the year in review. Welcome to Focal Point, the podcast that shows you how to tap into the power of the internet in your business and your life. Now it's over to your hosts, Chris Pudney and Gihan Pereira for this week's edition. Hello Chris, how are you going? I'm well, thanks Gihan, how are you? I'm happy. Yes, what are your plans for Christmas? Um, we're going to do the rounds of the rallies and then head down to the family beach house for a bit of relaxation. Yourself? Yes, I think similar, except it'll be my rallies, not yours. <laughs> and, and we don't have a family beach house. <laughs> but we'll be hanging around Perth. And I think it'll be nice. It's, uh, I can already tell that some of my clients have already started the festive season. They had their last day of work last Friday. So I think the next couple of weeks are going to be relaxing and enjoyable for everybody. Very good. That's what we're looking forward to. Yes. Now, at the start of this year, in January this year, we made some predictions. So we made some predictions about what would happen online in 2009. So in the interest of fairness, what we should do at the end of the year is go back and review our predictions and see how well we did. And I reckon we did pretty well. I think we could say at least 7 or 8 out of 10 and 10 out of 10 if we interpret it uh, in a certain way. That's right. We interpret it the way politicians interpret things. <laughs> That's right. So let's let's look back at, at the ten predictions that we made. So I made five of them. You made five of them, Chris. Let's take them in turn. Okay. So my first prediction was that blogging will become more common because the 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 software for creating blogs and for publishing to blogs has become much more mature. And I, I think this has happened. There's certainly been a resurgence in blogging, and I think partly because of the fact that microblogging or Twitter has become popular as well. So despite the fact that Twitter has become popular um, and people are doing these 140-character tweets, I think there's been a bit of a shift back towards blogging as well because people are now using their blogs as a place where you send out a little tweet with a link, but the where's that link going to go? It goes back to your blog post. And people want not just a little 140-character tweet, but they sometimes also want the in-depth notes and the analysis. Yeah. You're going to point people to the, uh, the Technorati state of the blogosphere in 2009 report. Yes, that's right. So Technorati is one of the leading blog websites, and they do an, an annual report, and we'll link to that in the show notes. And uh, they, they do definitely reveal a rise in professional blogging, and something that I've been doing myself as well is that bloggers were actually blogging more. So rather than maybe doing an occasional blog post, the people who were blogging actually blogging more frequently. Yeah, and the big standout for 2009 as revealed by that survey was microblogging, so Twitter in particular. So as you said, um, there's been a, a huge increase in microblogging, a doubling according to Technorati's survey, and then that in turn may, uh, might have been one of the causes for an increase in, in blogs that weren't microblogs. But one of the the things that I'm interested in, Gihan, that wasn't revealed by this particular survey was not so much on how much people were producing uh, in terms of blogs, but how much was being consumed. Because while I found that I haven't necessarily increased the amount of blogging that I've done, although I have been using Twitter for the first time this year, uh, I found myself subscribing to and reading more blogs, so using blogs more as a source of information and material and research rather than uh, being a producer. So. Um, I've not seen any figures that reveal whether that sort of thing has increased, and I suspect it has, just from my own personal experience. 
Um, but have you seen anything along those lines? No, I haven't died then. I, I think my gut feeling is the same as yours, Chris, that people are, are reading more blogs. But again, maybe we're looking at us, the, the market that we know are the sort of people who would be reading blogs. Um, but it's certainly become the case that even mainstream media, that there, there are journalists and reporters who now in the mainstream media will say, check out the blogs. And yeah. most of the news the old media websites do have a blog section as well. And those those blog posts are, are fairly active. So there are people commenting on them in the same way that people would in the past send letters to the editor. Here you get to do the same thing, but you get to do it instantly and on that on the same page as the topic that you're referring to. So I can only see that increasing. Yeah, okay. And if you consider podcasting part of the blogosphere, I certainly do. Um, we've seen an increase in the Focal Point podcast audience, I'm sure, during 2009. Mm, mm, and I think that's just something that's going to keep happening, isn't it? More people have got iPods, more people are now getting smartphones where they can listen to mute, listen to podcasts on them like the iPhone and so that's just something that has been growing over the last few years probably since 2005 when the word podcast was considered the the word of the year by the Oxford dictionary um, and in the and again that's something that's going to keep growing in, in the next year Alrighty. Well, we'll move on to the second prediction, and that was one that I made, and it was with regard to growth in the games industry, in particular the online games industry. And many of the uh, predictions made at the beginning of 2009 were tied to um, the basic, the, the idea that we would see the deepening of the global financial crisis during the year. And so many pundits were suggesting that when you have um, a recession, that people tend to stay at home more and find cheaper sources of of entertainment and as a consequence we're predicting things like more time being spent on movies, more money being spent on movies and being spent on things like games. So I'd uh, jumped on the bandwagon there and um, and made the point that I believed that that would happen and turned out I was right. So during 2009, uh, revenue from game sales in Australia at least were up about 8% at the end of uh, Q3 according to one of the um, blog posts that I saw. And that's pretty good if you consider that we did have a recession during the year. Having a, an increase in 8% in your sales is a, a very good result. Um, and in particular, different, there are several categories of gaming. So online was one of the sections which saw really strong growth, as well as growth in games on in social media websites like Facebook and um, MySpace. So people are probably familiar if they're a Facebook user with all those little applications that you can sub subscribe to, many of which are simple addictive flash games so there's been a huge growth in those and of course with things like the iPhone and its app store the most one of the most popular bits of application software downloaded from the app store is of course games for mobile devices like the iPhone and I also saw commentary that games sales in China went through a huge growth spurt during 2009 with uh, big predictions of further increases uh, in years to come. I think it's a good prediction, Chris, and it's one that did turn out to be accurate. Um, but and maybe some of the some of the places and some of the categories would have been things that we may not have been able to predict. Uh, so you mentioned the Facebook games applications. There's a hugely popular application. It may actually be the most popular application on Facebook called Farmville, where you create your own farm and you grow vegetables and things in there. And it, as you said, it's an addictive game because you have to come back and water your plants every day You and then you have to buy virtual money to be able to go and buy goods. And I think the makers of Farmville, Zinger, Zinger or Zinger, make um, hundreds of millions of dollars 
from that from well, from all the all the online games but Farmville is, is by far the biggest they're certainly carving out a strong niche in Facebook games okay well the next two predictions are related and one one I made Chris and one that you made uh, the, the, uh, let me start with mine which is that there will be even more free stuff and businesses will have to change their business model and, and instead of being able to sell everything that they were able to sell before, they'll have to monetize through other things like advertising and subscriptions and premium, premium services. And we ran a whole podcast on this about free as a new business model. Uh, Chris Anderson has written a book called Free, which a lot of people have picked up and it's become one of the, the most popular new business type book so it's kind of like flavor of the month and well it's yet to be seen whether it actually has a solid foundation in the real world but certainly it's pushing the idea that you give away more and more stuff free in order to make money in other ways and we've seen this also in a, another podcast that we did about the new media versus the news media uh, or the old media the the old type media newspapers tv are struggling uh, to compete and to remain commercially viable in the face of all this new media that's, being, that's becoming available. And they're going to have to look at different models as well. Yes, and in particular, one, uh, one organization, News Corp, have been outspoken in the approach that they're going to take. So Rupert Murdoch has said that he's going to put all of News Corp's news content behind paywalls. And initially it seemed that the, the approach going to be taken, some of the commentary from, from journalists at News Corp was that they would employ the freemium model. So it wasn't that every uh, newspaper, online newspaper from News Corp would disappear behind a paywall, that they would have some free content, but then you would have to pay a premium to access um, other material. But more recent comments by Murdoch have suggested that that's not going to be the case, that it's all going to disappear behind paywalls so, to, so as to block out the plagiarists and the parasites, as he calls them when he calls them, when he's referring to news aggregators and bloggers uh, picking up content from News Corp's websites and, and using it on their own sites. So they're going to try and buck the trend. They're, they're going to go away from the, the free model and uh, employ a, a pay-for content model. So it'll be interesting to see whether News Corp survives or, or thrives as a consequence of trying to go against the, the free business model that we spoke about earlier in the year. Mm, I'd be very interested in two things related to that. One is whether he will actually do that or whether it's just a bluff, mm -hmm. or whether he will proceed with that. There is one really well-known publication that does use that model, and that's the Wall Street Journal, where for a long time they were purely paid subscription only, and now they've released some of their material free, but it's still, like, they still work from subscriptions. But with the Wall Street Journal, you can understand that people who buy the Wall Street Journal, who are it's almost like a business-to-business a market rather than typical news where it's a business to consumer market so it'd be really interesting to see A, whether they go ahead with that and B, what the result will be. Okay well as you said that prediction leads into the second one that we're going to talk about and that's I predicted that online advertising revenues would fall as a consequence of the predicted economic downturn and the availability of ad blocking software so there's plugins you can get for your browser, for instance, that will just screen out all of the advertising um, banners and other things that appear on your website, on websites, just so you can clear up the page a bit. And that turned out to be, that, that was probably one of the weakest predictions that I made because it didn't turn out to be as bad as some of the pundits were suggesting, and, and indeed I'd suggested that as well. 
there was a dip at the beginning of 2009, but already there are signs of recovery in the online advertising marketplace, which is good news. But uh, in the news, news media sector, print advertising revenues have continued to fall to the point where people are suggesting that their online revenues, uh, advertising revenues, are going to overtake their print advertising revenues. And that's it's these falling revenues from print advertising that have got the old media news corporations and, and so forth uh, so worried about how they can remain viable in the free business model that we see sort of taking over or, or, or surging on the internet. And it'll be, so it's, a, it's a good sign that online advertising revenues are in a recovery because at the moment that seems to be the, the only light at the end of the tunnel for some of these old media services. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, my next prediction was that everything will be accessible via your phone. And I, I think I made that prediction based on a trip that I made to Europe in 2007 when I took my very first handheld pocket PC with me and I just discovered how convenient it was to have something that you could stick in a jacket pocket and still have access to the Internet, be able to send, send and receive email, update documents, and um, just have access to that without having to carry around even a bulky laptop computer and uh, if anything I think that prediction was certainly in my expectation was too conservative it's turned out to be wildly more popular than I had predicted and that's probably due to the success of the iPhone and the, the way that it's taken over not just the US market but now the Australian market as well um, ha has made this idea of things being accessible by your phone um, really really popular and it's one of those chicken and egg things that when people have phones that they can access stuff on then people will write applications for them software developers will write applications but people will only buy the phones if they're good applications available and Apple kind of pushed both of them at the same time and I've I'm quite disappointed with my iPhone, to be honest, Chris, but it, I can, there are certainly things that I do with it that I'm really happy to have access to it and have access to it on my phone rather than having to always log in via a laptop or some other computer. Yeah, and you pointed me to uh, a, a panel discussion about 2009 being the year of the smartphone, so in particular the iPhone has been one of the great successes this year and even in 2008 it was taking off. And as well as that, we've seen a maturing of the, the internet-enabled smartphone market with the Android platform. I think version 3 has been released this year, so it's, it's becoming more mature to the point where we have several handset manufacturers releasing devices based on Google's open-source Android platform, and that's something we talked about in a, another podcast earlier in the year. And as well as that, we saw Palm bring out their, their smartphone, the Pre, and iPhone continues to go from strength to strength in terms of its market share. And as well as that, there have been other internet-enabled mobile devices. So you talked about your pocket PC, Gihan. And then uh, this year, there was the Kindle released by Amazon. So that's an e-book reader. And uh, netbooks are becoming more popular. So these are like lightweight internet-enabled uh, laptops, but they're just much smaller. They're, they're lightweight and smaller, so they're more mobile. So just this increase in the number of devices available that are internet enabled and are mobile uh, means that uh, yeah perhaps that prediction was a bit conservative Gihan there's just so many devices that make it easy for us to be on the road and connected to the internet at any time. Yes I think one of the reasons why I'm a bit disappointed with my iPhone Chris is that it doesn't do as much as the pocket PC I mean in some ways it does a lot more but it doesn't allow me to really manage documents very well. So it relies on those documents being available 
on the internet, which is which leads on to your next prediction. Yes, a perfect segue, Gihan. So the next prediction we'll talk about was that I predicted everything will be in the cloud, which means that services, software services, will be hosted on the internet rather than being on your local hard disk software that you install on your PC or on your mobile device, that you'll be using a service that is on the internet, so available to you anywhere, anytime that you have internet access. And one of the driving forces behind that is that it can reduce cost and improve reliability and, of course, improve mobility and connectivity. Now, that's probably not been fully realised. Every service hasn't been uh, made available online, but a great many are moving online. And um, after our last podcast on called Productivity 2.0, in which you talked about a plugin for Firefox called Read It Later, so that allows you to essentially just mark maintain a reading list of interesting websites that you haven't got time to read now, but you can read later on. I noticed that they had quite cleverly made the Read It Later plugin work in the cloud in so much as you can put that reading list online so that no matter where you are, if you've got access to the internet, you can access your Read It Later reading list and catch up on your reading. I think you're right, Chris, that it's like not everything is in the cloud, but I, I don't think you literally meant that everything would be in the cloud by the end of the year. I did. <laughs> well, you were wrong. I was. <laughs> um, but one of the things that happened with cloud computing is despite the benefits of reducing costs and uh, improving reliability and having access to things in one place without having to synchronize, there are also some there are also some downsides as well, and we've seen a couple of them happen actually come actually eventuate in the in the last year. So people are worried about security, people are worried about their data being somewhere off site which they where they don't get access to it. And there have been a couple of incidents where some big name cloud service providers have lost data. Uh, and so I think people are still a little bit unsure about whether they really want to embrace cloud computing or not. Yeah, uh, but it is early days, Kihan, and I think re- reliability will improve over time. But as you say, there have been a couple of calamities. So there are things like Gmail going offline for a day. That's not good, but that's something that uh, is recoverable. But in some cases, as you pointed out, some services just completely lost their users' data, which is unforgivable, really, in this day and age. It is, it is. But as you say, that this is something that's only going to increase. In fact, I'm doing I'm going to have a little bit of a plug for a training course that I'll be launching next year, Chris, which is a two-day training course which will help you build your website in two days. And the, if you're interested in visiting the website, it's called buildyourwebsiteintwodays.com. Uh, and part of the promise of this training course, uh, part of what I'm selling it on, is the idea that you turn up with your laptop, either a PC or a Mac, so it'll work on both. There's no software to install. There's nothing, to, there's nothing extra that you need to download. Everything that you need to build your website is done in the cloud. So there's a web host and their content management system, but even things that previously you'd have to inst- uh, download software for. So most graphic designers, professional graphic designers, will use Adobe Photoshop, uh, which is a software package that they download and they, they buy and download and they use on their PC or Mac. Now, you can't get Photoshop in the cloud, but you can get some very good alternatives, which are certainly good enough for people who want to build a professional-looking website without necessarily becoming a professional graphic designer. And that's completely available in the cloud. And so it was quite interesting for me, as I was putting this workshop together, to look at how do I do some of these things that previously I would just have software on my PC, but where do I find something in the cloud that would do the equivalent? And it was just amazing how much stuff is available. And... um, 
I'm really quite excited about this workshop because it'll be it'll be an opportunity for any business person to say, okay, I'll build my website, be able to then maintain it from anywhere. So if they're traveling and they don't have a laptop or an iPhone, but they're in a Qantas lounge, they can log in and make changes to their website. And that's one of the big benefits of cloud computing. And it's certainly something that is well on its way, even though many enterprises are still not quite sure whether they want to embrace it. Yes, I think large enterprises is are probably going to be the last to move in this sort of thing, but it's the small, agile uh, businesses that are going to be able to take advantage of it first. Absolutely. Shall we move on to the next one? That you, sure. Your next of your predictions. So my next prediction was that there will be more crowdsourcing and collaboration. So all through Focal Point, the two or three years that we've, we've been running it, Chris, we've talked about this whole idea of Web 2.0 being about being a more collaborative workforce. So it allows people to collaborate, to work together on documents and to work together on projects and to run this 24-7 business model uh, because you don't have to be stuck in an office in Perth and have your whole team then going to sleep at night and not doing any work for eight hours. So there's the opportunity for collaboration and along with that is the opportunity for crowdsourcing. So crowdsourcing is more of a loose collaboration where you, you send out a project to the world and different people contribute and you get your responses from random people around the world. And the idea is that you don't have all the knowledge available, but you have access to that knowledge by outsourcing your projects to the crowd. So rather than outsourcing it just to to one provider, you outsource it to the crowd. They all come back with some answers. And uh, the idea is that you, you, you get a really good answer as a result of it. One of my colleagues, Yvonne Adele, she's a member of the National Speakers Association of Australia and of Thought Leaders. She has developed a very very clever and creative way to use Twitter as a crowdsourcing tool. So she runs a business called Ideas Culture, which is all about innovation and creativity and creating an ideas culture within an organization. So it's probably not surprising that she came up with a creative idea, but she's using Twitter for, for crowdsourcing. People, clients come to her and say, look, we want some ideas and she sends it out to her little Twitter army and they respond with ideas and they get paid. The, the, the winning idea gets paid and um, the client's really happy because they get access to uh, input from a variety of sources rather than just their limited um, input that they get just from their own work, from their own workplace or their own teams. Wow, what a great idea. It is, it is, and Yvonne's got a lot of uh, publicity and media about that and, and deservedly so because it really is a really clever way of monetizing Twitter and making money from what most people think is a waste of time. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, another measure of the success of crowdsourcing and collaboration is open source software. So that's a kind of software that is developed by the, by the crowd. So anyone can, can anyone with the ability to develop software can contribute code in order to develop a particular application or library of software. And uh, an open source advocate named Matt Day, who blogs for CNET, I think, he uh, mentioned that this year there have been some open source companies who have really experienced some very strong growth in spite of the tough financial times. So more and more companies are realising the benefits of crowdsourcing and collaboration as far as development of software is concerned. And so we're seeing a strong growth in the open source sector of the software business community. And one of the reasons that crowdsourcing works is, uh, well, there's two strong reasons. One is that you can reach more people, and secondly is that there are more people. And that leads on to your next prediction, Chris, about the growth of the Internet population. Yes, certainly uh, that was a bit of an easy prediction to make. And um, the, the numbers for this year, for 2009, make 
bear that out. So in particular, it was the Asia-Pacific that experienced the, the greatest growth in internet audience. So uh, the Comscore, who measured these sorts of things, so the number of internet users, they measured a 22% increase in the number of internet users in the Asia-Pacific, and uh, that's risen to 484 million people. That's uh, unique visitors, as, as they uh, term these things. Um, and in, in particular, it was countries like India, Japan and China that experienced growths of 17, 18 and 31 percent respectively. Uh, and even here in Australia, it was uh, 12 percent growth in the number of Internet users. It's really interesting to see what will what the effect of that will be because it, uh, I can see it sometime in the not too distant future where the number one the world's number one search engine may no may no longer be Google, it may be well Baidu which is the big big search engine in China, sheer, uh, purely by the sheer weight of numbers of the population in China, even if it's not the widest search engine, it'll certainly be the the biggest. Yeah, and if you consider those numbers that I just mentioned, the the increase in China to 221 million is only a small proportion of their population, so there's huge room for further growth in countries like China, uh, whereas in Western countries, uh, we're starting to reach a fairly high percentage of the population having internet access already, so there's not much more room for growth there. And my early, early prediction where I talked about gaming, again, it's, it's countries like China where there's been huge growth in the number, in the revenues for selling of games and again there's, they're predicting much more growth because they've got so much further that they can go. And I think that's really important because for ourselves we sometimes have a western centric view of the internet and for, for a long time that has been certainly the case that the bulk of the internet population was in the US, Western Europe and, and other English speaking places but that's no longer the case and so we have to take, uh, it, it is the world wide web, we have to take a world view and we think about ideas that relate to the internet. Absolutely. So my final prediction was that there would be there would be new tools available to let you manage a number of different social networks at the same time. Really, the social media landscape has come down to broadly three tools, Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And now there are tools that will allow you to update Facebook and Twitter at the same time. Uh, LinkedIn allows you to update your status by sending tweets. And so there's a bit of a crossover there. And it's actually something that I was against. I, I said, no, you shouldn't be doing that. Even if you have a tool that lets you update all these networks at the same time, you shouldn't because they're actually uh, serving different purposes. And but LinkedIn's very much a business professionals network. Facebook is very much much in the stereotype view is very much a personal network for your friends. So you shouldn't have something that lets you update both of them at the same time. But more and more, I'm thinking that's not necessarily the case. And I'm coming around to the view that, yes, it makes sense to update them all together because more and more, I think your personal and professional lives are merging. And there's the idea that you shouldn't have different online personas. There should be one online persona that's Chris Padney and Gihan Pereira, and you might choose what's private within them and you only allow access to certain bits. However, you're the same person, whether you're on Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn. So it makes sense that when you send out a tweet, you, you think about, should this go out to my Facebook friends as well? Should this go out to my LinkedIn network as well? And sometimes the answer is yes, so you do this. Yeah, you're right, Gihan. And add to that the, the online persona of organisations. So, for instance, QuickFlix is a, a DVD um, service that I subscribe to, and they maintain uh, an online persona. So they tweet, they have a blog, 
for uh, reviews and they have a mailing list and they also have a Facebook profile. And many of the things that uh, appear in their mailing list also appear as tweets and or uh, tweets that link to blog postings. So they, if for some businesses it's, it makes sense to have a single pro, a single persona that is across all of those different, so different social networks as well as their blogs as well as their mailing lists. I think some of the tools have become a little bit more sophisticated as well. So recently, in the last month or the last two months, I, I used to have two Facebook accounts, one for my personal friends and one for business colleagues and other people in my network. And the reason I did that was because Facebook didn't allow you to distinguish between them. But more recently, it has allowed you to do that. In the last couple of months, I basically have merged the two accounts, I've got rid of the personal one and asked all my personal friends to join my broader business Facebook account, but I tag them as friends so that they can get access to certain photo albums and certain other resources that I don't want to make available to the wider community. So some of these social networks are realizing that it makes sense for people to have the single persona, but they've also got to facilitate them being able to have privacy and choice. Yeah, and I guess a similar thing with Twitter where they've... um release the lists feature that allows you to group the people that you follow into, say, your friends and the people that you follow for your business or your work or just general interest, people who might not be part of your social circle but are part of uh, the list of people that you find interesting and want to follow. I see that your final prediction, Chris, has been an easy one. It is easy. (laughs) Go ahead. Which was that social networking websites would become more popular. So I plucked some low-hanging fruit there. And, yeah, that was an easy prediction to make and one that, of course, came true. And the numbers bear that out. Uh, Nielsen reports and various other uh, stats-gathering organisations that look at these sorts of things show that that there has been just a a big increase in the number of people participating in social networking. Um, Microblogging, again, Twitter this year has been one of the standouts in that regard. Um, So an easy prediction to make. Yeah, and again, I think that that we still haven't reached the peak of that. And even though the growth might slow, we're certainly nowhere near the peak of people using Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. And the whole idea that they, even if they don't have a website, they can still participate online. And even if they're not a business, um, they can still participate online. Yeah, yeah. Shall we move on to our final uh, prediction, Gihan? Yes, please do. Okay, well, we predicted that at the start of the year there was a a lot of talk about the Australian government's plans to impose mandatory censorship of the internet. So uh, we predicted that that wouldn't happen. But um, just recently, just in the past week or so, uh, the Senator Stephen Conroy, who is the... I can't remember the name of his portfolio, but he's responsible for that piece of legislation. They've announced, rather sneakily, I think, because it was after the last session of Parliament, it was while the media's attention was focused on the Copenhagen uh, Climate Change Summit, they announced their plans to introduce legislation early next year that will... Um, that will... Uh, seek to impose mandatory ISP-level censorship of the internet. Whilst it didn't happen this year, Gihan, it it looks like the government are absolutely determined to follow this through, which is which is disconcerting. It was more than disconcerting. It's it's a worry for us. And and I really misjudged how devious the politicians were going to be. I really thought that there was an opportunity for them to say, "Oh, look, we really want to do this, but the tests have come in, and they have." shown that it doesn't really work as effectively as as uh, we would as we thought 
uh, we've done the right thing, we've done the test, it hasn't worked, so therefore we're going to drop it. Um, and that would have been a face-saving way for them to back away from it. But it seems that instead of that, they've cherry-picked the tests that, which have worked, which are the ones that say, if I have a list of websites to block, then I can block them, which is obviously going to work. And they said, oh, look, that proves that the internet filtering is going to work, so we're going to go ahead with it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's strange because they did have an out there. They could have said the test failed, and uh, therefore it's it's not feasible. Um, but they're going to proceed anyway. It's not a fait accompli because, as we've seen with the government's ETS legislation, uh, there's opposition. the opposition has the numbers to prevent the legislation from passing. So we have to hope that uh, through uh, public activism and through uh, media scrutiny that the idiocy of this particular piece of legislation will be exposed and, and it will meet the required resistance in the Senate to prevent its, pa its passage. Um, but it's unfortunately it's in the hands of, of, of politicians, and so all bets are off, as, as our failed prediction shows. Yes. Well, that'll be my Christmas wish for 2009. <laughs> yes, me too. Absolutely. Wishing everyone uh, an uncensored internet. Yes. <laughs> so that is the that is the end of our predictions, Chris. As I said, I think we did pretty well for the for the last year. We will be back with our first podcast for next year will be our predictions for 2010 and we'll see some of them may be revisions or updates on the, the predictions that we made this year and some of them will be completely new. So yeah. I wish you and your family and all our listeners a very happy and safe Christmas, Chris, and best wishes for 2010. Thanks, Kihan, and similar wishes to our audience and to your family and friends as well. And speak to you again in 2010. Um, and also a big thank you to you, Chris. I've really enjoyed doing Focal Point, uh, not only this year, but particularly this year, because I think we've got better at it, we've become more professional at it, we've put more time into researching it, and um, I, I enjoy doing every episode of it. So thank you. Thanks, Gihan. It's been a pleasure. Great. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Focal Point Podcast. You can find us on the web at www.gihanperera.com forward slash podcast. That's G-I-H-A-N-P-E-R-E-R-A dot com. Subscribe to the podcast, listen to all our past issues, or leave us your comments and questions. We look forward to having you back next time. <laughs>